Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, I am joining you uh, remotely today, probably like many of you here in Seattle. You're tucked up at home. I did attempt to get to the station this morning and did a 360 spin on the, on the freeway on I-5, so I decided to call it a day and turn home. But Eric Ryder made it into the station, so uh, we're glad to be joining you today. And, and I've got great guests joining us, so let's dive in here and, and get started. So we're going to be joined by um, some extremely popular best-selling authors today. Coming up around 12.20, three-time Rita Award winner Sarah Morgan joins us from England with her new book, Summer in Paris. We'll end the show with returning guest and number one New York Times bestselling author James Rollins. His new thriller involves some familiar characters facing new challenges. So think artificial intelligence and witches. Sounds a strange combination, but it makes for a thrilling book. But first, I'm very pleased to welcome back number one New York Times bestselling author Karen Kingsbury. She's joining us today with her son and co-author, Tyler Russell, and together they've written a children's book about the Baxter family children. So um, I'm going to bring them on uh, so we can learn more about uh, we've talked with Karen before, and certainly I'm so pleased to have you back, Karen. Uh, thanks for being with us today. She's yeah. very well known for her award-winning uh, inspirational storytelling. And you're joined today by your son, Tyler. So thanks, both of you, for being with us. Yes, hello. Thanks for having us. So fun. So, Tyler, let's, let's learn a little bit about you. You've been telling stories all your life. Probably not surprising since your mom's such a great storyteller. <laughs> Is that where the inspiration came from? I think so, yes. I mean, from as long as I can remember, I, um, I would write these little goofy plays and have my cousins and my siblings star in them and always had some kind of story, you know, up, up my sleeve and watching mom write. I definitely think I got that bug from her. And so what point did you guys decide, hey, let's write a book together? Well, I had a busy publishing schedule, and I still do. I do about you know two novels a year, full-length adult novels. And we were having a publishing meeting, and we were talking about the Baxters, these characters people have loved now for 20-plus books in 20 years. And they'll be the subject of a TV show coming out at the end of this year. And we said, what about if we went back and we tried to figure out what made them the best family ever? Like, what were they like when they were children, 6 to 12 years old? And uh, the publishing brand, you know, the arm of Paula Wiseman at the publishing house, she said, this would be a great middle grade book, you know, a chapter book, kind of like we used to read the Little House on the Prairie books and that kind of thing. So we began to dream about it, but my schedule was tight, and I thought, okay, I've got Tyler. He's an incredible writer. He knows the Baxters. I said, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> you want to do this with me? <laughs> so he wrote draft one. I mean, we outlined it together. He would write the first draft. I would kind of give it a polish, and we would be ready to go. And so uh, how long did this take you to put together working like that? I think we started working on it. Um, we probably started working on it about two years ago, you think, or maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, and just like, like Mom said, outlined together and just got to sort of imagine what these 
kids were like, you know, when they were younger. The people who are familiar with the Baxter family know them as adults, but we got to go back and sort of color in the lines, you know, where people might not know what they were like when they were 10 or 11. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure you're going to get a great response from this. And you're also pretty busy yourself, Tyler. You know, reading that you're a screen, you write screenplays and novels, and you're a songwriter, a singer, actor, all-around creative. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I love all of that, and I couldn't, I guess I can't just pick one, so I'm trying to just dip my hand in as many things as I have time for, and I enjoy it. I I enjoy it. I think that's great. So let's uh, talk a little bit about um, the characters. Let's introduce some of the characters to our listeners. Um, And, you know, for those who are not familiar with the Baxter, let's just, you know, pad that so that, that it makes sense. Right. Well, the Baxters have five kids. So Brooke is kind of the oldest. She's the brainiac and does kind of everything right. <clears throat> and then there's uh, Carrie. Carrie is a dreamer. She does a lot of work in her journal, and she's just a sweet girl. And then Ashley is funky. She questions things, and she gets the words wrong sometimes, but she's totally committed to that, and she's funny. Uh, then we've got Erin, and Erin is sort of a reader she's a little mommy's girl and luke is the youngest and he is just a spitfire full of adventure and creativity and so the tension in the book comes when this this family is very happy they've got this beautiful home it's the only home they've ever known and something happens to kind of upset that a little yes um you know the book starts out great they're loving their life they live in ann arbor michigan and then their father announces that he has accepted a job at a hospital in Bloomington, Indiana. And at the end of the school year, they will be moving. So like so many of us have experienced, you know, as we're growing up, is that idea of saying goodbye and having to leave friends and places that you've, you know, only known your whole life. And so they they go through this book and, and learn to say goodbye and, and what that means and ultimately discover that no matter wherever they go or whatever they go through in life, um, as long as they have each other, they can get through anything. Right. And so what age group would you say this book is for? I mean, I don't have kids. And I just yeah, I would say, I mean, if you go to Amazon, they'll tell you it's 8 to 12. But the reality is if you have a, a really a young reader who can read chapter books, the younger reader would love it. But also adults are loving it. And something Tyler has said is it's for kids, but it's for the kid and every adult. So uh, my sister's hardly a child, and she just finished reading it, and she said, Karen, you have to tell everyone, it's for adults, too, like, they're going to love it, so, you know, it's, it's um, the size of a small novel, it's, it's about half the size of my normal novel, uh, it's, you know, got got 20-some chapters in it, and literally, you laugh and cry, you're, you're always going to be in the point of view of either Carrie or Ashley, so you get to see life through the eyes of a child, and that's good for the soul anyway. Right. It's um, It comes in hardback, which I like. You don't see too many uh, novels uh, for kids in hardback. Was that we are a hoping, choice? yeah. We're, I mean, we're, oh, yeah, we're hoping it'll be a kind of a classic. You know, the, gone are those days when we can go back and get them. But, like, when I was, you know, 8 to 10 to 12 years old, I was reading The Little House on the Prairie, Boxcar Children, or Nancy Drew, and they were always hardback. You had, like, a, a little prize, like something you could really kind of cherish. Um, that's the hope here is that this is the first it is the first of three books we'll put out one a year uh, the one next year will be called Finding Home so uh, Best Family Ever is the beginning and allows not just kids to read because you know some people don't have the best family ever uh, for those kids this may be a chance to dream about what may be one day for them 
but mm-hmm. it is a time for families to come together, read it out loud, uh, share the experience of what these kids are going through, what their family is going through, and relate it to your family. Right. So it, it's also about saying goodbye, um, really, and that's always that's hard for everybody, really, to say goodbye. Um, so what do you hope that children will take from this? I think that, you know, teaching children how to walk through seasons, like saying goodbye, um, you know, not every child in the Baxter family handles it well. You know, some of them are excited and some of them are against it. In fact, Ashley, when her dad tells them that they're moving, she's like, well, you guys can go ahead, but I think I'll stay behind. You know, she thinks she can just stay by herself. Um, but I think you get to watch her transition and come to accept the idea that she's going to do it whether she likes it or not. And um, I hope that it helps kids dealing with any sort of loss or saying goodbye sort of see how they can get through it. Um, it also deals with themes like being honest and what that means to be a good friend or um, be kind to your siblings or, you know, um, respect your teachers or respect your family. So I think it, you know, as we watch these kids go through everyday life, we get to see how they handle situations, and I hope that it impacts children to um, choose to be the best versions of themselves. Right, right. So tell us um, what it was like actually writing together, because I, I, I know you said Tyler did the first draft and then you came back, but um, was it an easy process for you? How, how did you work through some challenges in that? Because, you know, I, I write with teams sometimes, and it can get uh, it can get difficult sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's really easy. <laughs> I think we had one meeting early on where we were like taking a look at it, and you know, I, I mean, obviously I've done this more. I've done, you know, I've written millions and millions of words, and so it was just like a he's a very good writer, but to be able to have the same voice that that was the trick, you know, is to be able to go okay, how do we merge our styles and it wasn't it wasn't difficult to merge the storyline because we agreed on the outline up front but we did have one good meeting where it was like a kind of a, a come to truth meeting of let's just make sure this book's going to be everything it can be and Ty was just so he was great he was very teachable as you have to be I mean we all we all answered to someone and we answered to editors I mean I don't, I don't care how many books I write my prayer will always be that my editor makes me better you know I've got to be teachable no matter how far it goes so, you know, that that was a fun learning moment that we had, I think, early on, and um, and it and just has been pretty seamless since then. One of my favorite parts is when we get to the editing, and we might be working in the same space, in the same house at least, you know, and he's not at his house, he might be at my our house, and uh, I can hear him laughing out loud. <laughs> or he can hear me laughing, you know, reading his chapter, and I'll be like, what's making you laugh? Like, it's it's so fun that we can then be kind of like the readers, in a sense, and go, okay, this is actually really good, and it's funny, and it's tender, and it's the kind of story that you want to share with people you love, and, and just seeing it, seeing the reactions actually happening in real time like that, that's, that's very rewarding. Mm. And so what did you learn from each other throughout the process? I've talked with other uh, mother-son teams, father, father-daughter teams, and they've each taken away something from the other um, through the process. I I think for me, um, I mean, apart from the whole wealth of knowledge, just as much experience as my mom has with writing and in the industry, I I learned so much about just that whole process and the whole business side of things and just um, her creativity and and, and her talent. You know, that was a huge thing that I learned. But I also learned just the importance of humility and not being married to your idea, right? So 
I could have this great idea that I think, you know, is the best idea ever, and she might have a reason why it doesn't quite fit in this story. And so learning to be like, you know what, you're right, actually, that's not the best idea for this. And um, you have to kind of check your ego at, at the door in a partnership like this and not take it personally. And I think we both um, do a, a good job of, of understanding that ultimately we're here to serve the story and the readers. And so if one of us has a great idea, great. And if it's not the best idea, let's find something better, you know. I, I, mm-hmm. I love that. And I think for me, uh, and this is like what every mom wants to experience, it's like, yeah, I know he can write, and I know this is real, and this is serious, and this is a real, you know, Simon & Schuster's monster excellent best, and it's a, it's a legal contract to write a book for someone. So I think what I learned is that I can count on Tyler. He's, inc- he's incredibly reliable. He's not missed a deadline. He brings his A-game effort each time. So it's encouraging to me that there will be lots more, and not just in collaboration, but he will be writing books on his own. Right. That's, that's great. And so do you have a particular scene that either one of you prefers to write that would take the lead on that? Some people like writing certain kinds of scenes more than others. Hmm. Do you have one, Mom? The, I mean, for me, themes, I feel like, um, you know, I love, in, in this in Best Family Ever, one of the things I love is that the kids aren't all going to be the same. So Ashley, for instance, is just in such big trouble in Chapter 16 because she's got this big lie that she's told her mother. And instead of doing her math problems, she's drawn flower blossoms where all the answers should go. And she knows she shouldn't have done it, and she's in trouble. So she loves to draw. She hates math. Her older sister is a math whiz. And in this particular chapter, she's feeling like because now she's in trouble and she's wondering if they're going to send her to jail. And, you know, just she she's she's so kind of discouraged. But at the end of the day, she's going to learn that, um, you know, she does not have to be Brooke. And she's, she gets to be the best her. Sure, she still has to do math. Um, but, you know, that, that particular scene where she has to face up to her parents about this lie and um, deal with that. I, it's one of my favorite scenes. In fact, it's the one we'll be sharing and reading when we go visit school. Oh, very good. And I, I guess you're busy doing that right now, right? <laughs> we are. We're going to start tomorrow. Tonight we're doing a fun um, Facebook Live. We'll be at uh, 9 o'clock Eastern. We'll be on Facebook Live doing a live signing, answering questions, maybe reading a little bit from the book. And then starting tomorrow we're doing school visits and uh, bookstores all week. Excellent. Well, Karen Kingsbury and Tyler Russell, I thank you so much for being with us. What's the best place for people to reach you to find out more about your work, more about this book in particular, Best Family Ever? The best place would be to go to karenkingsbury.com, and we'll have a couple video trailers. We'll have a reader guide for parents and just a place where they can get the book, their favorite retail. Great. Final quick thought, Tyler, you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Um, just that I, I really hope that you enjoy it. I hope that as you read Best Family Ever, um, you're reminded of your childhood and that you get to introduce the gift of reading to a child in your life, whether that's a student or a niece or nephew or your own child. Um, it's a real special book, and I know that you'll enjoy reading it together. I love it. Thank you so much, uh, Karen Kingsbury, Tyler Russell. Thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. And Thanks. Thank you. We'll do it again. The book is called Best Family Ever. Yes, we look forward to uh, the following book. So <laughs> we'll see you then. Okay. All right, we need, we need to take a quick break. And um, we will be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. 
At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Anti-Icky Poo, the product that gets the stink out, we cover the world of animals. This week, February 10th, it's Harmonic Energy Shifting Sunday with Jude and Paul Ponton from the Whispering Dragon Center in the studio. They'll have their Accutonic Forks and Chimes, Tibetan Bowls and Bell, Pua Dig and Rattle ready to do remote treatments for you and or your animal friends. So plan to give us a call and join us for Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 11.50. Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable it is at conversationslive.net. Be sure to support the sponsors of your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And uh, we are joined now by Sarah Morgan. If I sound a little strange today, it's because I'm joining you remotely because of uh, what's happening out there on the freeways today. Um, but again, kudos to Eric for making it into the station. Really appreciate uh, him doing that and keeping us live today. So I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Sarah Morgan. She's a U.S. Today uh, best-selling author. She writes what they call hot, happy, contemporary romance and women's fiction. And her trademark humor and sensuality have gained her fans worldwide. She's described as a magician with words by RT Book Reviews, and she's a three-time Rita Award winner. Her new book is called One Summer in Paris, and we're pleased to have you on the show today, Sarah Morgan. Nice to be here. <laughs> yes, and you're joining us from uh, England, so we're really uh, spanning the globe again today. So yes, um, we've, we've not talked before, but you're highly, highly acclaimed as an author. How many books have you written in total? Gosh. Well, if you count novellas, because I started writing um, for Harlequin series, so they were slightly shorter books, obviously. I've done about 86, but of the longer wow. books, the novels, you know, I've, I've sort of slightly shifted throughout my career, done different things, um, because that works for me. I like variety. So I have a bit of everything in there. And these longer novels that I've been, that I've been writing over the last couple of years, um, well, I'm on, I'm on about my fourth now, but the third one is coming out. So I've sort of changed what I've written all the time, really. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about 
One Summer in Paris, your new book, um, which is coming out actually in April, I believe. Is that correct? Mm, yes. Yeah. When the snow's melted. Paris in the springtime. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to all of us. <laughs> so um, it shows how long these things take to come out because I have, I have looking at the proof, uh, the uncorrected proof here that um, came out that the... When the book comes out, I mean, I don't want to give too much away before it comes out, so you, I'll let you do that, okay? You tell us what the book's about. Okay. So One Summer in Paris is about um, a woman, Grace, who's about to celebrate her 25th wedding anniversary, um, and their daughter's about to leave for college, and so they're going to be empty nesters, and she has these really great elaborate plans for a surprise for her husband, so she's booked a trip of a lifetime. Um, she's booked a month in Paris. Uh, so she's very excited about this. And unfortunately, her husband has a surprise of his own. And on the night when she tells him that she wants to do this trip as a surprise, he tells her he wants a divorce. So obviously she's heartbroken, uh, but she decides in the end to go to Paris by herself. And that isn't something that she would necessarily have done. This, this book's a little bit about choices and change and how change is often forced upon you. Uh, but her daughter is obviously very worried about her and refuses to go on her own travels unless, you know, without knowing that her mother is fine. So Grace says, yes, yes, I'll go. So she goes to Paris, um, and once she's there, she meets an 18-year-old girl um, called Audrey, who's also at a crossroads of her life. And um, Audrey has left England behind, has a very difficult family background, and she's taken a job in a Parisian bookstore, even though she speaks no French and actually hates books. So she and Grace meet, and this unlikely friendship develops. Um, and yes, it's uh, it was a really fun book to write. Actually, I really enjoyed it. I'm not giving away too much about what happens. And I have to say that when I started the book, you, uh, usually when I write, uh, I'm I don't have a firm plot, but I know roughly what will happen, and I almost always know how it will end. But with this one, I actually didn't decide on the ending until I got there, actually. So that was um, a slight departure for me. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So why did you want to... Uh, let, let's talk about your two characters then. Why did you want to bring these two together? It's a story of... It's, it's a love story of a different kind, if you will. Yes, it is. And, I mean, obviously there is romance as well, but, yes, it is a love story. Um, and it's basically friendship, and I'm really... It's the theme that I'm really interested in and something that I really wanted to explore was perhaps a... And a different gener friendship of different generations, you know, multi-generational friendship. Because so often we find that we've made friends with our age group. You know, we have friends from school, and then we make, meet friends as we go to work. And having um, friends of different ages can be unusual, but very enriching. And one of the fun things about this book was seeing what these two characters gave to each other, really. Um, it's a little bit of a Pygmalion, I suppose, um, so you've got Audrey, who had no support at home, very difficult home background, and her life was perhaps a direct opposite to Grace, who had tried to build this perfect family. Um, so Audrey, who doesn't really trust people because of her own family background, gets all this kindness, and I suppose the first real friendship from um, Grace. And, and Audrey, in turn, pushes Grace out of her comfort zone, and you know she makes her do things that she would never have done before. So... It's, yeah, it was a really fun book to write, actually, but I think it is an exploration of friendship. Right. 
And so did you go to Paris to research this? So I, I'm assuming <laughs> you've maybe been to Paris, right? Because it's fairly close. Absolutely. <laughs> well, as you know, I, I live in London and Paris is a brief train ride away. It's only two hours. So that's lovely. So I, yeah, we have been there often. I didn't go specifically for this book. I was too busy, but we've been many times. So it was, it was pretty easy for me to, you know, picture it and and um, create the setting that I needed for these two, really. Because when she first arrived, Grace is staying in this very expensive hotel that she'd arranged for the honey for their you know second honeymoon, their 25th anniversary. And, of course, she feels very uncomfortable there because the staff knew she was going to be celebrating an anniversary. Um, and pretty soon she ends up uh, moving into an apartment above the bookstore, uh, which is where Audrey lives as well. So, so the whole break really changes in nature so she's not she's no longer doing all the romantic things she would have been doing you know had she been there on her um, anniversary celebrations it's a completely different look at, at her life really right you you do write about some um some difficult topics in there though too um you know i mean relationships one um uh, dyslexia. You write about alcoholism, so it's yeah. um, you. In, you incorporated this throughout your story. Yes, um, because both these characters actually had quite difficult backgrounds. Um, yes, there there is alcoholism and some addiction, and yeah, divorce and infidelity. There is plenty <laughs> in there for readers to argue and talk about, which is always fun, you know. And I I find it fun when I'm asking myself those questions. You know, what would you do if? That, you know, I, that's my favorite question. What would you do if? And, of course, the truth is we'd all do something different. And uh, none of us know what we'd do until we're actually in that situation. Um, and it was quite interesting when I was doing some of the uh, research on divorce. But I, um, I, I found out that often the couple is very influenced by the people around them. So if, if people around them are saying, oh, you can't possibly fix it, you know, you can't possibly get back together, that has a huge impact on, on you know, the couple because um, people are judging, really. So external wow. judgment can impact on your decision. But, yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about in the book. <laughs> yeah, and what's the lesson there? Don't listen to other people. <laughs> well, I, I do think you have to think about what works for you. I think it's very hard. And I think there will be debate about this. And as I say, I'm not saying how it ends because um, right. that would be a spoiler. And I didn't even know how it was going to... And in, interestingly enough, um, one of my earliest readers said, well, I was reading this and I had no idea how it was going to end. And I thought, well, that's because at the point you were reading, I didn't either. So, you know, if anyone says, oh, it was completely predictable from page one, I'll think, well, I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, by the, by the time I got to the end and I knew these characters and I'd worked through the situations, I knew what had to happen. Um, but I think it will be, yeah, an interesting discussion topic. Mm, very. And so you said that you don't you don't do a hard outline you do a, a rough outline certainly for the beginning and ending yeah. how did yeah. the characters develop to you how did they come to you oh, that's such a good question um you know i don't always even know how they come sometimes i'll hear something or see something just a snippet and i'll think oh that would be that would be good i almost always do start with character um and I think in this case, it was Grace It was Grace who came to me first. And I thought, you know, what would happen if on your 25th wedding anniversary and you think everything's fine, you genuinely think everything's fine, and then suddenly this bombshell. It's about change that 
forced upon you because life that life so often does that, doesn't it? You know, you're yeah. you're going along your merry way, and then all of a sudden something happens, and you have absolutely no choice about it because this is in this book, it's not mutual. So she genuinely is shocked, and she has no choice but to find a way through. Really, so I suppose the the book does explore change and and indeed our choices because um, had she not had a daughter. Uh, to think about, she might not have gone to Paris. You know, it took quite a bit of courage to go on a on a celebratory <laughs> anniversary trip somewhere without the person you without were the person to. you're supposed to be exactly. celebrating with, right? Right, exactly. definitely. She also lives in a small town, and and everybody's very concerned about her, and that's a bit stifling too. So she was quite glad to get away from that. <laughs> right. And so um, let's talk about. Um, Let's talk about dialogue because uh, you write dialogue really well. I always oh, say this, that, that if the dialogue is stilted, I just can't read the book because it's not true. So what process do you go through when you're writing your dialogue, Sarah? Well, I talk a lot. I talk a lot myself. <laughs> I'm not a very quiet person. <laughs> so I, I would say I'm an expert at talking. <laughs> Uh, but apart from that, what do I do? Well, as I, I generally start writing, and interestingly enough, I was about halfway through the book when Audrey's voice as the teenager suddenly clicked for me, and I thought, okay, right, now I'm hearing exactly how she would talk. So to some degree, it's about getting to know the character. And once you know the character, you know what she would say, and you know how she would say it. And sometimes for me, because I haven't planned the whole thing in great detail, I'm getting to know the character as I'm writing, and then suddenly I'll think, okay, now I know her. Then I'll go back through and I'll think, would she say that? Would she say it that way? You know, would she use that word? Uh, and, th- and that's actually fun. When you, when you discover you know your character that well, it's, it's like knowing a friend. You know, you know what your friend would do or say in any situation. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I read it aloud. Sometimes I do to see if it sounds right. Um, and I've got an excellent editor. But yes, I think talking something I just do well in practice <laughs> <laughs> comes naturally I read that you um you always dreamed of being a writer even as a little girl you you dreamed yeah. of being a writer and yeah, so I what was it. it that made the final push because you say you took some details along the way but you, yeah. you finally <laughs> began doing it well I mean I, I I definitely want to be a writer I remember saying to my mother when I was eight I really want to be a writer and she sort of said well that's you know that's great but you probably can't make a living that way which actually is very sound having one of those days because of my 360 spin out on the freeway this morning. 
<laughs> but what makes it difficult I, when you, because you've been writing a long time now, so mm. what, what do you still find a little difficult and what do you find easy? Well, I tell you what, every book is equally difficult. Isn't that awful? You'd think that after, I mean, I have been writing, what, nine, published for 19 years, which means I've been writing for longer than that. Um, so published for 19 years. And yes, I still, um, every book is as, is, it feels as difficult as the last one. But I think to some degree that's because you want it to be really good. You know, you're setting a high standard for yourself. You know, if your readers love the last one, you want to make sure that they really love the next one. You know, I never want to disappoint a reader. It feels like, you know, if people, if people say, I can't wait for your next book, then you want to make sure that they're really going to love it. So I think, you know, you do have that pressure of making sure that what you, what you deliver is exactly what the reader wants. Um, right. And so what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you first began writing? Oh, golly. <laughs> Probably a lot, but I mean, what's, what's one thing that really stands out to you? Uh, you know, there's so much that you try and control, and really, uh, you know, most of it's outside your control, and all you can do really is keep working, keep working, keep writing, which I have done. So, you know, although I'm sort of saying I wish I'd known that, I mean, I always have done, so I probably did know that, but I wish I'd sort of known that you, all you can do really is just keep writing the very best book, keep your head down, keep working hard, and... You know, careers go up and down, and there's an element of luck in it. Um, and really just to try and relax and enjoy it, actually, because it, it's a fabulous job. You know, it's, it's a hard job. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a fantastic job, and I never lose sight of that. I'm very lucky. Um, and just really to kind of chill <laughs> and enjoy that. Everything's <laughs> so stressy. <laughs> right. So um, we're almost at the end of our segment here, but what would you like listeners to know? What, what do you hope they'll take away from One Summer in Paris? What do you want them to know about your work in general? I hope that they just find it hopeful and uplifting, really, and have you know, plenty to think about and talk about, because I think it's fun. I always love talking about books with friends. Um, so really just to feel hopeful and uplifted, and I hope they feel like they've had a trip to Paris if they can't get there, travelling vicariously by the book. There we go. Well, a lot of your reviews have said uh, it is very uplifting. So for somebody who likes, what is it, hot, snappy, contemporary writing, I love that. Hot, hot, happy, contemporary romance and women's fiction. I love it. And where's the best place for people to find out more about you and your work, Sarah? Oh, my website, yes, sarahmorgan.com. And find me on Facebook because um, I'm always chatting to readers. I love talking to readers. Connecting with readers is one of the best parts of the job. So you can find me on all the social medias, but particularly Instagram and Facebook. All right. Well, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for Thank joining you. us today. Thank you and so much, Vicky. You're very welcome. And the book, again, is called One Summer in Paris. Sarah Morgan, my guest. Please stay with us. When we come back, we'll be joined by James Rawlins. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. 
Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Oh, yeah, that could work. Do something different with your spare time. Give baby animals a pause a fresh start. With the assistance of caring volunteers, Paws helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year. Join us and save lives. Become a Paws Foster Care volunteer. For more information, visit paws.org or 425-787-2500. Paws.org or 425-787-2500. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150KKNW. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. My next guest is James Rollins. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author, and uh, he's written many international thrillers. His Sigma series has been lauded as one of the top crowd pleasers by the New York Times and one of the hottest summer reads by People magazine. And we're going to talk about that one of those releases today. The new book is called Crucible. James Rollins, welcome. Thank you, Vicki. And uh, I just want to let listeners know if they're just joining us and I sound a little different today. I, I'm remote in, I, remote, <laughs> I called in remotely today because of the uh, weather outside, on the, uh, outside in Seattle. But um, very pleased to have you here, James. Um, and wow, another book. You are really turning them out. <laughs> How long does it take you to write one? Well, I do about 90 days of research where I get sort of the skeletal outline figured out. And then on the 91st day, I have to write. I've fallen into that trap before where I just keep researching. And I realize I'm not actually producing any pages. So the 91st day, right, takes about six months to do the first draft. 
and then uh, about another month of editing. So all in to- all told, probably like maybe 10, 11 months from the from the inception to turning the manuscript into the uh, to the production department. Mm. And Crucible is the 14th in the Sigma Force series. Um, so we've got returning characters here, but with a whole new challenge. Exactly. You tell us a, yeah, tell us a little about it. Well, this book deals with a uh, coming crisis that the physicist Stephen Hawking once described as the worst event in the history of civilization. Elon Musk you know, said that if this happens, it'll lead to World War III. Vladimir Putin even stated that whoever controls this event will control the world. And that event is the creation of the first true human-like artificial intelligence. Now, that may like sound like science fiction, science fiction but nowhere in my novel does uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger try to save Sarah Connors. <laughs> I'm dealing with what's really going on in the in the in the tech world with artificial intelligence, and the book starts with the murder of a U.S. ambassador in Portugal, along with a group of female scientists. The attack sends a young researcher named Mara on the run with her creation, a rudimentary AI named Eve, and it's up to uh, as these deadly teams are trying to hunt her and secure her tech. It's up to Sigma Force to rescue her and secure her evolving AI. Especially as Eve, this, this rudimentary AI is growing rapidly, into, aiming towards either a godlike being or a demon like no other. And in the end, the book confronts a mystery tracing back to the Spanish Inquisition, and ultimately a question that's facing humanity is, you know, what does it mean to have a soul? Because soon we may be sharing this planet with a uh, an intelligence that's equal, if not superior, to our own. Yeah, that's not something I'm looking forward to. I don't know about you, but. <laughs> And in, in, uh, the one thing I love about your books is that you always have these really interesting pieces, of nuggets of history that very few people have heard about before. So um, I, I said at the top of the hour to our listeners, think AI and witches. So how, how do these come together? And one of the things you talk about is um, a little-known book um, uh, that was that you found. Um, it's a single book. It was in written in 1487. Right. Uh, exactly. Back before the mid-1400s, um, the Catholic Church really didn't have that much of a problem with witches. Uh, there, were, you know, there wasn't any major persecution of women. There were uh, women that were practicing these healing arts. A lot, of, a lot of the women that were declared witches were people that were just experimenting with you know, pagan herbology, dealing with plants, trying to help, help uh, treat animals and people. And eventually... Uh, they started being persecuted. The big turning point in history, in the mid-1400s, there was a publication of a single book in 1487. It's a witch hunter's Bible. It was a, called the Malleus Maleficarum, or, or in Latin, the Hammer of Witches. Now, it was written by a Catholic priest, and it probably would have been lost into obscurity, except for one unfortunate uh, situation, is that this book came out at the same time that Gutenberg's printing press was invented. And because of that, it was one of the first books after the Bible to be mass-produced and distributed. And because of that technology, all of a sudden this book was widely available, widely read. It basically was teaching how to identify a witch, hunt a witch, torture a witch, and put a witch to death. So basically, you know, happy reading. And it was a, it was a match that uh, literally started the great conflagration, the great burning that over 400 centuries ended up with almost 60,000 heretics and witches put put to the stake. Mm, interesting. I, I read that you um, actually believe you live in a haunted house yourself, or the rumor is that you live in a haunted house yourself. <laughs> I, just, I just moved into a house just, just this past year. 
It was built in 1936. Uh, it's within the shadow of a, of a structure called Cave Rock, which is an ancient Indian burial ground. I'm so close to that that uh, those grounds that uh, when I had some landscaping done on my my property here, I actually had to have archaeologists come in and survey for Indian remains before I could dig. Now, uh, knowing that, maybe that was the back of my ha- my mind when I was moving into the house. But I had just sort of this strange feeling, uh, occasion of that sort of you know quiver of the hair at the nape of your neck type of feeling, and I just sort of you know, dismissed it as just you know superstition or whatever. And then one day I was talking to my realtor, and the realtor just out of the blue, this was not a part of the conversation. He just blurts out, "Hey Jim, have you uh, seen the ghost yet?" And I was like, <laughs> "What? What ghost?" So yeah, you know this. Back, you know, when the owners that had the property before you did uh, had uh, some weird energy feeling about the house, and so they brought in a feng shui expert to analyze the energy of the house, and the feng shui expert determined that the house is indeed haunted. It's possessed by an animal spirit, and the the expert determined that the animal spirit was a raccoon. So apparently my house is haunted by the spirit of a raccoon. Which, you know, my former profession was veterinarian, so I think that's, you know, maybe appropriate that if I'm going to be haunted, I'm going to be haunted by a raccoon. Well, that's a first. I've never heard of a, a raccoon haunting anyone. I, I had to laugh because you said that uh, to accommodate him, you now leave your kitchen garbage can open. We have to live in peace with the ghost, so I figure I might as well not, uh, not aggravate it or any more than I have to. And to appease it, uh, you know, just leave the garbage out, the lid off. So let's go back to, um, let's talk a little bit more about modern witchcraft. Arthur C. Clarke wrote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and you, you tackle modern witchcraft in your book. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, this book, in the, in the past, it was those women that were you know, daring to question the natural order of things that were practicing pagan rites in, in a world that was, that was becoming more and more Christian. And because these women dared question the natural order, they were persecuted by the patriarch at the time, the church. And, you know, even today, you know, women in the sciences, because uh, that's what we're dealing with with modern witchcraft and using Arthur C. Clarke's quote, you know, any sufficiently advanced tech is going to look a bit like magic. I mean, I've got my iPhone in my pocket, you know, Siri speaks to me, uh, you know, I've got Alexa on the countertop. And, you know, if I took this phone back a few decades in the past, most people would have thought, you know, it's witchcraft, it's magic. There's no, there's no way that you could possibly have in your hand the equivalent of a, of a you know, almost a supercomputer that has an AI built in that can answer whatever questions you like. So and this book deals with the fact that even today there is a fair amount of persecution of women in the sciences, women today that dare question the natural order of things. We see a lot of sexism in the sciences. We see a lot of... Uh, uh, lower pay for women that are in, in the STEM, STEM fields. Uh, we see a lot of uh, research being denigrated because it's coming from women. And so this book shines a little bit of uh, the light on the fact that, yes, we were burning witches in the past. We were burning women that dare question the natural order of things. But today, you know, we're not burning them, but we still have a very big uh, persecution in its own right towards women in the sciences. Right, definitely, definitely. Um, I heard that... Uh, Tell me if this is true. I heard that if you get the book at Costco, it has an alternate ending. Is that correct? It does. Now, all the endings of all the books are the same. But with Costco, there is a, a bonus material, which is a alternate ending. Because the book ends a certain way, but if a certain coin flips the other direction, the book could have, the ending could have been greatly different. And so I, I sort of do a cautionary tale if that coin had flipped the other direction, how that, how 
this whole situation might have ended. Mm. And talking of uh, cautionary tales, <laughs> you say in the foreword uh, to your book that if you read the book, you risk dooming yourself forever. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, there is actually buried in the heart of the novel a curse. Uh, now, it's not a, anything supernatural. It's not a, ca- a curse cast by a witch. It's a, it's a danger inherent in the knowledge found within these pages. It's almost a technological curse. And once you read this book, uh, you may be inadvertently dooming yourself for all eternity. So I do at the beginning uh, have a sort of forward warning that when you read this, uh, you know, there's the old phrase, you know, ignorance is bliss. Well, once you read my, no- my novel, you're not going to be able to claim ignorance in regards to uh, this one curse. Right. I see you have a, you've been on book tour and you have a heavy book tour still ahead of you, but you, you're not coming up to Seattle anytime soon, right? No, not this, this tour. My book got, uh, my um, pub date got juggled a little bit, and so my entire book tour got, uh, sort of had to be rejiggered to, to fit the new schedule. And so I was originally going to be in the Seattle area, but then that got changed. Yeah, because I know you have a big following up here. Um, let's talk about challenges writing this book, because I think with each new book, there are different challenges. What were some of the challenges presented in writing Crucible? Well, I, you know, I'm always challenged when I'm writing a book. All my novels sort of deal with uh, some cutting-edge bit of science. makes me go, you know, where's that headed? What, what might happen next? How might that challenge us? And so when I'm dealing with, with science or tech, you know, it changes rapidly. One of the challenges when I'm writing books like this is to be as current as possible so that, you know, when I finish a book, there's oftentimes a six-month, if not a year, lag time between when I finish it and when it gets published. And oftentimes science can change very rapidly, and so I want to make sure that what I'm writing is as current as possible. So I, while I do deeply research on my material, reading anything I can get my hands on, but I also love to have sort of a bevy of, of, of specialists, experts in the field that I can question. I did with this, I had 22 AI research experts that were willing to talk to me by phone or by email. And, you know, I wasn't asking them, you know, what was in the last book you wrote or what was the last publication you could. I said, look over your shoulder. Tell me what's on your work table or your lab table right now because I need to be that current. Uh, I need to find out what's going on right now so that when the book comes out, it still feels fresh. That was a challenge. Uh, It was also nice to be able to have that opportunity to speak to these experts and I can ask them questions like, well, when do you think we might cross the threshold? Uh, is the threat is as dangerous as Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk seem to imply? And if so, are there ways around that? And the answers that I, to those questions are, are folded within the story of Crucible itself. And so has that ever happened to you that you've written a book and you've had to go back and, and update it before it goes to press? I mean, that must oh, yeah. be a nightmare. <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I'm oftentimes I'm keeping my, my, my ear to the third rail of what's going on, and if something changes, I've had to I've had to alter the book from you know after I actually gone to production I said you know hey there's this has changed this was when I wrote the book The Bone Labyrinth which was a book a couple couple books ago which dealt with um, genetically engineering uh, the human genome at the embryo level and some of the tech had been changing rapidly and so I had to keep tweaking it and the book also dealt with the history of, of our genetic history tied to Neanderthals and some of the other early uh, Species back there, and so that kept changing. Also, so I was constantly tweaking that novel. I'm sure it's quite aggravating to my editor to do so, but uh, I try. Yeah, to but as you said, uh, things things change quickly, and it's, they don't seem to change just a little. They they seem to go through this massive leap when they do right. change. Exactly, and, and I don't want somebody to read my novel and go, "Well, that you know that that feels old or tired or that's wrong." Um, 
so I, to get that cutting edge feel to the novel, I need to be as current as possible. So I'd rather go right to the horse's mouth for this information rather than looking for, you know, reading it in a book, which oftentimes that information is years old. Reading even a magazine article, oftentimes that information is already months old. So the best source, the most current sources, go right, right to that scientist in the field. Mm. Very interesting. The Crucible is the 14th Sigma Force novel. What do you want to leave our listeners with today? What do you hope they'll take away from the story? Well, definitely, you know, I, I build a roller coaster. My goal is to entertain your prior guest, Sarah Morgan, had a book set in Paris. Uh, hers is a very uplifting tale. My, my book is also a majority takes place in Paris, but it's, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a little romp in Paris. I, I think <laughs> no. I, burn, I burn most of Paris down during the course of this book. But uh, so I, I build a roller coaster ride, but I definitely, my hope is that when you turn the last page and you close the book, I'm leaving with something to think, think about. At the end of all my books, I have a what's true and what's not section where I tur- pull aside the curtain. I show you where the information came from, you know, what was true, what, what maybe I stretched a little bit or extrapolated a little bit. So if there are any breadcrumbs about the history or about the, about the science, if you're intrigued, you can pick up those breadcrumbs and follow them, uh, follow them on your own. Yeah, and I love that you do that. I, find that. I always find those sections fascinating. So James Rollins, always great talking with you. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Vicki. It's been a pleasure. And uh, you can find out more about James Rollins at his website. And James, I believe that's jamesrollins.com, right? I don't have an internet Correct, connection yeah. right now. <laughs> jamesrollins.com. Okay, and the book is called Crucible. So we're right at the end of our uh, show. I have the run. Uh, we've pushed it a little late here. So uh, we'll see you next week. Live well, live strong. Thanks for being with us. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.